Very warm welcome to you. If you're not uh, used to being here with us, my name is Steph and I am one of the pastors here and we are uh, in, the, in the middle now of a series that we started a few weeks ago on the church entitled The Church Is and uh, today's uh, title is The Church Is The Temple of God. Um, let's turn together to uh, 1 Peter And I will read the first couple of verses and then we will pray. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's alive. Thank you that it's been breathed out by the Holy Spirit. And thank you that it's, um, your word is very, very able to do all kinds of incredible things inside our lives, our hearts and our minds. We pray that that's what would happen over this next part of the meeting, we pray. Amen. Amen. So the church is the temple of God and we've got this great scripture here uh, and I'm going to make three points in today's message and the first message is this, is that with Jesus we are living stones. With Jesus we, the church, are living stones. Now, what you tend to find throughout the New Testament and the New Testament is the part of the Bible that was written um, from the time of Jesus onwards is that certain Themes come through, certain images are given that unless you understand the Old Testament, which is the part of the Bible before Jesus came, you might get a sense of what the writer means, but you won't get anywhere near the depth and the layers and the richness of what the writer means. We can't really understand the New Testament in its full glory if we don't understand the Old Testament. And that's one very important reason, there are many others, that's one very important reason to stay immersed in the Old Testament and to keep reading. Because what you'll find is is that you'll read things in the New Testament and you'll go, that reminds me of something. And when you go back and find it in the Old Testament, it will help you understand the New Testament because the person that was writing the New Testament, when they wrote that, they themselves were thinking of that Old Testament scripture and and it joins the whole thing together into God's story. Now, this subject of stones is a very important subject in the Old Testament. There's a couple, well there's more, but I'm going to refer to a couple of instances with a stone that help us to begin to put together What's going on here? What Peter, the apostle, is getting at. There's one instance in the book of Genesis. Um, and that is about chapter 28 when Jacob, who is he's, he's on the run from his brother Esau, who he's stolen from his brother. His brother wants to kill him. And so he's on the run and he finds himself in this, in this place uh, called Luz. Um, some great names in the Bible. Um, and he sleeps, he sleeps outside. And we're told this strange thing that he finds a stone and lays his head on it. That's a, that's a strange thing to do. Um, I don't know, we all have different habits of pillows. Some of us have one, some two, some three, some fold it in half, some put it in funny positions. None of us, I imagine, use a stone. It's odd. 
I'm sure he would have had a rolled up cloak. I'm sure he would have had other bits with him he could have used. He uses a stone. And then he has this incredible dream and he sees angels ascending into heaven and descending on this kind of staircase or this ladder, Jacob's ladder. He sees this and he wakes up and he says, surely this place is the house of God. And he changes the name of the place from Luz to Bethel, which means house of God. And then he sets up a, 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 like a monument, a, a, a memorial pillar, and he places the stone under his head on the top, pours oil on it, oil on it, and he says, this stone is Bethel. And he calls the read it in Genesis 28, I'd never noticed it before. He says, this stone is the house of God. Fast forward to the Gospel of John, and Jesus, talking about himself, says, you will see the angels of God ascending and descending on me. He's saying, I am the house of God. I am the stone. And then in the book of Daniel, we find King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He has this dream about this. He sees a statue made of different kinds of metal, representing different empires. And he sees this stone cut out, but not by a man's hand. So it's kind of divine. And this stone smashes into this temple and, and obliterates all these empires. And then over time, this stone becomes like a mountain that fills the whole earth. And Daniel interprets the dream and talks about the kingdom that God is going to set up that will fill the whole earth. But it, and it ends up as a mountain, but it starts as a stone. And so you see, when you get to the New Testament and Peter starts to talk about this living stone, then you go, hold on a minute. Who, this is packed full of meaning. This is, this is talking about the house of God. This is talking about the kingdom of God that's going to fill the whole earth. Earth. And Peter makes two points about this stone. Number one, that he's rejected by men. And number two, that he is, in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So this Jesus, we see that he was rejected by men. He came as the, as the Messiah to the Jewish people and they rejected him. He came as the king of the world and the world powers rejected him. The Bible says he came to that which was his own and his own didn't receive him. But whoever did receive him, it gave them the right to become children of God. You see, he was rejected. He was rejected from, from his earliest days. He was rejected in his ministry. He was rejected by being taken to execution. He was, he was hated by many. He was loved by some, but hated by many. And yet the whole time he was chosen by God, precious in his sight. It's very important that we understand this is what Peter is getting. This is what he's talking about. Because then he says this. You also... No, no, no. Back to the before. <laughs> You also, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. He's, this is ever so important. He's saying Jesus is this living stone that is like the core, the key, if you like. We'll look more later to the house of God. But you also, he's writing to believers, are like living stones. You yourselves also are living stones. And so there's two things that will be true of you. You yourselves also will be rejected by men. You need to hear that. It's ever so important that we hear that. As we go on through the passage, you'll see why. You yourselves, you also. Something happens to living stones. They get rejected by men, but they're chosen by God. The, the system of the world doesn't like living stones. And there's a, and, and there's a no, we don't like that. that. That is part and parcel of the inheritance of the church. Rejected by men. There's something about the church that makes people go, no, I don't like that. That doesn't mean the church is doing something wrong. It probably means the church is doing something right. Not when they're offensive for the sake of it and all of that, but when they are really living out who they are, something about that 
makes, makes, makes lots of people go, don't, don't want that. Why? Because it, it, it gets a bit close to the bone. Super, something supernatural is pushing in and, and challenging, just by its nature, challenging something in the heart that goes, no, I don't want that. And so we also, like living stones, rejected by men, but chosen and precious in the sight of God. See, can't have it both ways. The Bible says that the things that are really esteemed before people are abominable in the sight of God. Can't have it both ways. So straight away you go, oh, you start to realise what, what he's getting at here. So this is who we are. This is who the church is. And he says you are being built together. So there's other parts in the Bible where it will talk to you as an individual and it will say you're the temple of God. Your body is a temple and it will make certain um, consequences of that. Here he's saying it's a different image, same idea, but slightly different. He's saying you're living stones and together you are being built into a spiritual house. You're being built into God's temple. So it's a slightly different approach. But what he's saying is this, is that as you are being built together, and I guess Sunday is a good illustration of that because we are physically in the same room, but it's more than that. It's that we are members of one another. We're in and out of each other's lives and hearts. There's fellowship that goes on. We serve and bless one another. There's relationships that go way beyond just a meeting on a Sunday. As, as this happens, something is going on whereby God is saying, I can live in that. I, that's where I want to live. When God sees people that he has chosen and are precious in his sight, regardless of how ridiculous the world think they are, loving one another, serving one another, living, living in a way to please him, God says, I want to dwell there. I want to make my presence known there in a real way. In a real way. Not in a way where you have to imagine it. As if, let's imagine God says, no, 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 God says, I want to be, that's my home. That's where I want to live. It's not a building. It's not that God finds ornate buildings and doesn't want to live there. There's nothing wrong with ornate buildings, but that isn't what draws the heart of God. What draws the heart of God is living stones built on the living stone. He said, that's where I want to, that's where I want to be. So church, we are the temple of God. It's very weighty. It's, very, uh, it's a great privilege to be in this position. And then he says this, and then he says, he says to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, what does he mean there? Because he says it's not just a house, it's a holy priesthood. So what he's saying is it's the temple of God, but it's not empty. It's full of everything that the temple of God should be, part of which is priests and offerings and all of that. So we're saying together, but we, used, we all sort of start scratching our heads and we say, well, hold on a minute. We thought Jesus did the offering. He offered himself once and for all. What, what, this sounds, what, what are we doing here offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God? What are they? And I think most of the time we tend to go to, it's probably singing praise. Am I right? If I said to you, is singing praise. How many of you think, yeah, that's, I reckon that, that's how I would interpret that? None of you. Okay? Wow. Literally none of you. Huh. Okay, what's the question? An honest wife is more, worth more than her weight in gold. Everyone else is going, my hand isn't up because you've totally confused me, but Davina said it. Thank you, my darling. So, I've been in this text all week, so I'm like buzzing with it. I just realised I've just running on ahead. So, all right, here we go. It says here that we're being built up as a spiritual house, yes? To be a holy priesthood, yes? To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, yes? So in the Old Testament, the priestly duty, they would offer gifts and they would offer sacrifices, remember? 
So now it says, we are like this, we are doing this. Now my question was, when you think about us as the church offering sacrifices, what, what do you... Because we know that Jesus has offered himself as the sacrifice. We know we don't have to do sin offerings and guilt offerings anymore. Agreed? Because it's been done. The price has been paid once and for all. Hallelujah. All right. So we know that. So, but, but it says here that we offer spiritual sacrifices. So my, my question was, is what is that? And I said, I reckon most people in their mind, they, go to, they think about singing God's praises. That it's, it's a sacrifice of praise. And then I asked the question, who here would have thought, yeah, that's how I would have understood this? So I'll ask it again. Who here thinks this? Yes, that's how I would have understood it. None of you. Okay. Oh, wow. Life is going on. Well, what did you think then? You've blown my whole thing. Who, okay. Who would have thought, I'll go for option B. Who would have thought this is about offering up our lives to God as a... As a, as a, as a oh, okay. Well, I'll have you know, I think it's something else. Yep. I think it's something else. So, the closest parallel you will find to this wording, I believe, in the New Testament, is in Romans chapter 15. So, I'm not saying it isn't those things, it is those things, okay? Romans 12, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, yep, okay? It's true. So, I'm not saying that's not true. But I wonder if there's something here that we don't think of. That even in this passage, I think, maybe is what Peter is getting at even more than the others. So if you look at Romans chapter 15, I will read to you verses 15 and 16. Paul says to the Romans, listen to this language. But I've written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again, because of the grace that was given me from God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. He's talking about evangelism. And his understanding of evangelism is that he is winning people from the harvest and then presenting them to God as an offering. I think that is the closest parallel in terms of wording that you will find to this Peter passage here. He understands himself as a priest. And by the way, the Bible says if you are a believer, you are a priest. Okay, it's not some denominations call the pastor the priest. It's so terribly unhelpful because the Bible says that all believers are priests, the priesthood of all believers. We all have access to God. Okay, so we're priests. But here, the understanding, and as we go through the passage, I want to show you why. But I believe Peter is primarily talking about evangelism. I'll show you why as we go through. Point number one, with Jesus we are living stones. Point number two, only Jesus is the cornerstone of the temple. Let's look at verses six to eight. For it stands in scripture, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honour is for you who believe, but for those who don't believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offence. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. There's some big stuff in there. I'm going to attempt to try and walk you through that. You see, it's packed full of Old Testament scriptures here. You'll, you'll find these quotes from the Old Testament that are in, uh, in quotation marks here. You'll find them in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14, if you're taking notes. 
Isaiah 8.14, Isaiah 28.16, Psalm 118.22. He's quoting these, these, these words from the Old Testament where you see the, this, this idea of the stone coming in and, and it becomes this cornerstone. Now a cornerstone back in the day, when you laid, the cornerstone was the first stone that you laid and it would determine the entire shape and trajectory of, of the whole building. Okay, And so, with, so, so we are living stones but Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the cornerstone of the house of God. He determines the shape, the dimensions, and, and the, very, um, the very nature of the house of God. He is this cornerstone. And there are two responses to this cornerstone. Verse 6, to believe. Those who believe in him will not be put to shame. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? It means to build your whole life on the cornerstone. He says, I'm going to, I will let my whole life, the direction of it, the shape of it, the feel and texture of it, be determined by him. Okay, it's not just, I believe in Jesus, tick a box, yeah, I read my Bible sometimes, or I go to church. No, 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 please, folks, I want to rescue you from that. It is not, it is simply, a, it's a deceiving idea. Please do not think that is believing in Jesus. There's plenty of worse things you could do, but it's not believing in Jesus. Believing in Jesus is that you build your life entirely on the cornerstone. Say, I'm going to trust you, Jesus. Past, present, future, I'm trusted with my resources. I'm going to completely throw myself on you. I'm going to let myself be built on you. The promise for those people is that they will not be disappointed or they will not be shamefaced at the end. You will, you will never get to the point, if you do that, where you've got egg on your face. In what sense? I mean, because actually as believers, there are seasons, aren't there, where you think, this is, I'm feeling disappointed. We had, there was prophetic words earlier about it. Where I'm feeling, I'm feeling like I've got egg on my face. I follow God and look where I've ended up. What's he saying here? What he's saying here is this, ultimately, finally, you will never be disappointed or put to shame. Though, though, though in this life and in this age, there will definitely be moments where you go, what's going on? Of course there will be. Of course there will be. You're in a fallen world. Tragedy does strike, even believers at times. Difficulties come, confusion, confusing things happen. Of course there will be disappointments, of course. You have to learn to find God in those moments. They are inevitable though. But ultimately you will never be disappointed. You will never, you will never ever, at the end of the story, you will never regret building on Christ. But at times in the middle of the story you might go, ah. That's just because you're in the middle of the story. It's like anything. Watch a film. You don't pause it in the middle and go, oh no, that's it. Oh. Someone said this film was good, but look what's happened. I've had enough. You're only an hour through. Let the thing play out. There's a plot. There's a story. It's going somewhere. There's a story that God is spinning together and, he, and he, will, he promises to cause everything that comes your way to work together for, for good. Everything, okay? But don't pause it and throw your toys out the pram. Stay in the story, okay? Watch what he does. On his behalf, I say to you today, watch what he does. Okay, you will not be shamefaced. You will not be disappointed. Okay, that's the promise. A build, okay? Don't stay on him. Okay? The, the, the storms will come, but you, you will not crash. Because he's solid. He's the cornerstone. But then verses 7 to 8, you see, what we realise here is that Jesus Christ will either be your salvation or he will be your undoing. He will either be your salvation or he will be your undoing. What he will never be is irrelevant. 
regardless of what you consider him to be or not to be, regardless of whether you consider he really is the son of God or not, I say with, with all respect, your perspectives and opinions of who he is do not determine who he is. He is who he is. And Jesus himself said that all judgment had been entrusted to him by the Father. And so the reality is this, is that he will either be your salvation or he will be your undoing. You will find yourself undone by the fact that you have not trusted in God's gift to humanity, God's salvation gift. You've stumbled over him instead. Now this, what's slightly troubling here is they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. I could very easily as a preacher just jump over that, let's go to the next verse quick, maybe no one saw it. As they were destined to do. Now, what am I going to say about this? Well, it's very difficult. It's very mysterious. I don't understand it fully, but here's what I do know about it. It helps us to undo our ideas of a pathetic God, helpless in the face of our unbelief, stressed out as to why we will not believe. It turns the tables on this whole idea that we are somehow a portion in the beginning to the end and captains of our destiny. If you don't believe, then it's what you were appointed for. If that gets you angry, then repent and believe. If you don't like it, repent and believe. But it's true. It's the word of God. In all its mysterious gravitas, I don't, I don't understand that fully. The Bible also teaches us it's God's desire that none should perish. But all should come to knowledge of the truth. The Bible says that whoever believes in him will not be ashamed. The doors have been flung open for us to be saved. But if someone chooses not to, the, the, the answer to that is not that God has lost sovereignty or lost control. That's not the answer. The answer is God always knows what he's doing. And so I want to urge you, rather than stumbling on this Jesus, trust in him. Humble yourself and trust in him. Be wise, do the wise thing, turn to him, call on him for forgiveness. Number one, with Jesus we're living stones. Number two, only Jesus is the cornerstone of the temple. Number three, walking in the truth opens wide the temple doors. Walking in the truth opens wide the temple doors. Let's look at the next passage. But you are a chosen race, Christian, a royal priesthood. Church, you're a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellences of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's hold it there for a second. Let's hold it there. These are big identity statements, right? You've got to know who you are because you live out of who you are. Okay, You live out of who you are. We all have a deep sense of who we are and we live out of it. You, you know how you understand yourself, who you understand yourself to be by the way you live. Strong, I mean, it's a strong message today. And uh, I mean, like I've said to you every now and then down the years, I have to go through the preparation <laughs> of sermons like this and I, I'm not going to spare you the pain either. <laughs> these things, I mean, these, you... You have to wrestle with this, on, not just on a, what does it mean theologically, but on a, on a oh, mate, Lord. This is challenging. I've got some confessions to make later. It's challenging. Okay? 
These are huge identity statements. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. What does it mean there? That you may proclaim the excellencies. Now, who here would think normally that's talking about singing praise? <laughs> Some of you are still being honest. This word proclaim, declare, it means show forth. Show forth. I'm sure it involves that. But it doesn't primarily mean that. I think primarily it means that you know who you are in him and what he has done and you want to let the world know about it. You've been, you want to proclaim his excellencies. Why, why, why? Well, because, here we go, he called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. You might think, I haven't got a testimony, you know, that person over there was a murdering drug dealer and they've got an amazing story. I was sat in my bed age three and my really nice Christian parents led me to Jesus. I've got nothing to say. <laughs> right? You've got three things to say. Number one, you was in darkness, now you're in light in Jesus. Okay? You, 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 without, without, without the Holy Spirit coming to you and showing you Jesus Christ, you would have been utterly spiritually lost. There would have come a point, even in your lovely Christian home, where you would have outgrown it and walked away, except for the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Okay? You, was, you would have been in darkness, but he's brought you in light. Number two, you weren't a people, now you are a people. Okay? You've been made a part of the people of God. And number three, you hadn't received mercy and now you have. You've known the mercy of God. He's forgiven all of your sins. He's not treating you as your sins deserve. He's treating you in a completely outrageous way. You've now got a story to share. Amen? So don't worry about all that. You've got a story to share. You can proclaim his excellencies. You can turn to your neighbour. You can turn to your colleague. You can talk to the stranger on the tube and say, do you know what Jesus has done for me? I was lost but now I'm found under his judgment but now I know the forgiveness of God in my heart that's what this is teaching here that's what this is saying here and then this brings us to the final point verses 11 to 12 well it's part of it's really all part of it's part of this point walking in the truth knowing who we are opens wider temple doors okay so knowing who we are creates a scenario where you start proclaiming his excellencies and so you are opening wide this temple for those who don't yet know him to come in Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is ever so important. I'm going to end on this with some very specific application. The power of a holy life. We don't talk about holiness perhaps as much as we ought to it's so helpful to hear Rose today just bring us back you know because you can get this idea well I'm, I'm adopted uh, I'm close to God and, and what we can do accidentally is we can bring, us, bring God down do you know what I mean as we do that in our minds oh, he's, he's, was, uh, Rose said no we are adopted but look he's, he's awesome he's holy and that's so helpful because you go wow well, well how, how can that be and you go Jesus you go ah right you know so it's ever so helpful but we don't talk about holiness because sometimes people say well I'm not into holiness I'm into grace I don't like that holiness stuff. I like grace. Uh, problem is, it's all part of the same thing, guys. Holiness and grace, that's, that's, that's the gospel. They're not in opposition. They are friends to one another. And, and there's, there's two things that, that, that Peter really focuses on. Here. Number one, he says, I want, to, I want to urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh. I want, I want to urge you to learn how to say no to certain things. 
Okay? Why? Because those things will, will, will fight against your inner life in God. They wage war against your soul. If you get into them, what they, they will all but destroy your inner life with God. They will make you dull to, to a sense of his presence. Okay? They will make you spiritually dull. The passions of the flesh. The, 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 the Bible is actually full of lists of sins, even the New Testament. Full of lists, impurity, immorality, coarse jokes, filthiness, silly talk, covetousness, bitterness, slander, drunkenness, greed, malice. These things are not okay for a believer. They're not okay. You must have put them under grace and they're not okay. It's not alright. Because what you're doing is, you're not making God any less gracious, but what you're doing is you are dulling. You are dulling your inner life. You're training your appetites to crave things that are, that are low rather than things that are higher. You're, 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 so it's waging war against your soul. Not only that, is you're being a terrible witness. You've been a terrible witness. <laughs> Sorry, I've got to be honest. You're saying this is what Jesus is like and he's not. There's nothing like that. See, so we've got to really take this seriously and say, Lord, help us walk in holiness. God gives us power to... But God, the Holy Spirit will empower someone who's made a decision to be holy. If someone has not made that decision, they're living in two minds, how can the Holy Spirit empower that? If someone's made a decision to compromise, how can the Holy Spirit empower that? What, what's there to empower? There's no decision to live for God. To say no to these things. I do want to speak strongly about the language that we use. I've been in numbers of conversations with reverends and they just drop in quite strong language and you just jolt. You go, did you just say that? Wow, like, that's okay to just... Because out the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. What's going on in there? Drunkenness. Let me say this to you. Different people have different capacities for alcohol. The Bible does not condemn the drinking of alcohol. But the Bible says that one of the things the Holy Spirit is doing in you, one of the fruits is self-control. And so whatever degree of alcohol it takes for you, even in the slightest part, to lose one element of your self-control is too much. It's too much. Because you're no longer in control of what you're saying. You've been dulled. It's not okay. God, Reverend's got a bit strict these days. <laughs> it's always been the case that we're serious about holiness. Really serious about it. And I, I, I guess I just sort of, but then you realise actually you've got to say it. Because <laughs> the Bible writers say it. They're very explicit. So if we're not doing that, we're not being apostolic. This is what they do. They say, listen guys, this stuff, it's no good. It's no good. Um, so we're just copying that. But it will have an eternal impact. If you keep your conduct among the world honourable, even when people speak against you, actually, you know what? There's a, there'll come a point where they go, you know, we've just got to glorify God. It's even tied in with the return of God. I don't know how it works. It doesn't mean they'll get saved. I don't know what it means. But it's like it's a bit like Ruth the other week with light of the world. You know, they'll see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. It's the same thing. So there's things we don't do, and then there's things we give ourselves to. We give ourselves to good deeds. We've got to break that mentality of I'm doing stuff until the rest. I'm living for the rest. Living for the no. Live from rest and do good works. That's biblical. This London thing of, oh, you know, I, I fall into it. How you doing? I've done okay, nearly half term. Said it this morning. Said it this morning. It's not biblical. We live, in a, live from rest 
and excited about good works. That's our destiny. My destiny isn't half term. My destiny is good works. Okay? Being honest. We've got, if, we, if that's our mentality, we're not living in rest. That's how we're thinking. Learning to find rest so we can fulfill our destiny, which is to do really good works. Not saved by works, but saved for works. What we're saved for. It's what we do until he comes again. Good things. Bless and serve people. Pour ourselves out for people. It's not a distraction. That's, that's the to-do list. God, keep washing us in it, Lord. Keep washed because we're surrounded by a completely different way of thinking. Right, I'm going to finish now with two myths to debunk on evangelism. Number one, we would only have an impact if we're like everyone else. Got to be like everyone. Got to be like everyone. Got to, you know, then, we'll, then we'll have an impact. No, you won't. You'll completely nullify. You'll be, well, listen to last week on salt. <laughs> Cracking sermon. Listen to that. That will straighten you out. So I won't spend any longer on that. <laughs> Number two myth. We must first build really deep relationships before sharing Jesus. Utter nonsense. Utter nonsense. Crazy. What happen is you'll, 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 you'll be building this really deep relationship before mentioning Jesus and then the relationship will be so deep and meaningful to you that you won't mention Jesus in case they don't like you anymore. <laughs> it's all that'll happen. It's all that'll happen. It's nonsense. You've got authority to speak about Jesus. Just do it well. Do it respectfully. Do it lovingly. Do it with a life adorned with good works. But you haven't got to know him at all. Of course, yes, it's absolutely ridiculous. It's, it's actually satanic. A strategy to keep the church quiet. You might say, yeah, but there's a process of people getting saved. Yeah, but what, what on earth makes us think we're the beginning of that process in that person? The Lord has been probably sowing and watering into their lives for years before they meet you. Just say, hey, how about Jesus? I go, yeah, I might get saved there and then. Because God's, God's <laughs> doing the stuff through more than just me, right? And more than just you. He's at work. He's giving people dreams and visions. He's unsettling people. He's drawing people to Jesus. He's, he's at work. So follow his lead. Be out there. Talk about him. Um, I think both those things, the thing of trying to be like everyone else and, and build a deep relationship and don't talk about Jesus, is basically both of them are based on the fear of rejection. You don't want to be rejected. You are destined to be rejected. It's your inheritance. Back to the start of the sermon, it's your inheritance. Not because you're annoying or abrasive or offensive or argumentative or stupid. No. No, but because you're a living stone and you've got the fragrance of Christ and to some people it smells like death. Okay? I'm just giving you biblical truth today, guys. Uh, it says in Philippians chapter 1, a couple of verses, I keep saying we're going to finish, but I'm, I'm on a roll. So I'm not. Philippians 1 verse 29. Where is it? For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him but also to suffer for his sake. It's granted to you from heaven. Okay, it's part of your inheritance. Um, Revelation 2 verses 4 to 5. You've lost your first love. What are they talking about there? Probably talking about witnessing. They don't witness anymore. Because they'll take your lampstand away. To the church in Ephesus. The lampstand always represents witnessing. You see, because out the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So when I'm really excited about Jesus, guess who I speak about? 
And when I don't speak about Jesus, guess what, it, guess what it often demonstrates? I'm either afraid of rejection or I'm not excited about Jesus, one or the other or both. And um, uh, the Bible says, do not many of you aspire to be teachers because you will receive a stricter judgment. And I just want to apologize to you as a church because I've not really done this very well in, the, in, in, in my recent history. I think I've, I, don't, I haven't even got the excuse of saying I've fallen for these myths. I think I've known that they're myths, but I've hidden in them. And I want to say I'm sorry because I, I do believe that I've definitely lost my evangelistic edge um, because I wanted to be respected. And I'm not saying that I've denied Jesus, but sometimes by my silence I have. I have. There have been moments and opportunities, um, some of which still haunt me. I know the grace of God. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not living under condemnation, but they, you go, Lord, that was so timid. And I want to say I'm sorry because it's not been a good example. And even if you say, well, I'm not following you around watching you, Steph. No, there's something spiritually that happens if leaders aren't being good examples. Spiritually, there's an impact. So I want to say I'm sorry for that. And I want to ask you for your prayers. I don't want to make it about me, but I want to just ask you for your prayers because I, 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 I want to take this really seriously um, and welcome you and invite you to hold me to account, not in a kind of nasty way, but just, hey, how you doing? You know what I mean? Don't be mean, but just ask me, ask me, how you doing? I appreciate that. that Help me stay sharp. Because there's something, this is weighty stuff. We're the temple of God. And we're called to proclaim his excellencies. And that is the means that God is going to use to save the multitudes. And if we're quiet, I don't know how it works in the sovereignty of God, but if we're quiet, that will have an impact on that. I don't know how that works. And so let's, Let's take this to heart, church, and let's uh, allow the word of God to um, get into us and do its work. Let's not be afraid. Don't listen to this sermon through the fear filter. Some people have a fear filter. Listen to everything through fear. I wonder why they don't like it. I'm always terrified. Take the fear filter off. Embrace the faith filter. Say, Lord, show me, teach me the glory, the joy, the freedom of not being dictated to by what other people think of me. That's freedom. To be who I really am, the light of the world, rather than constantly hiding what people are going to think. There's wisdom and all of that. There's wisdom. Yeah, I'm not. Don't hear what I'm not saying, but there's a boldness underneath it that says I'm free. As we take the bread and the wine, and as we honour and worship the Lord, now let's just just some of us probably need to repent of some compromise and lack of holiness. You've not been. You've just been fooling around. Just, the Bible says if we confess that, He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. Okay. So you haven't got to live with it, deal with it, deal with it. And if it's appropriate, confess it to one another for your healing. Sometimes that really helps to just bring it out during bread and wine. And let's get our eyes on him again, the wonderful cornerstone. Say, Jesus, we want to build our lives on you. Amen? Amen. Amen.